And this is God's word to us, so let's ask him to help us understand. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray that as we look at this passage which demonstrates your absolute sovereignty, that you'll help us to humble ourselves before you, that you help us to trust in your word, and that you'll have mercy upon us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, we've seen that Christians can be confident. We can be confident that when we trust in Jesus, God forgives our sins. We can be confident that we will be saved from God's anger. We can be confident that God will bring us to glory. Why can we be so confident? Romans chapters 1 to 8 has given us lots of good reasons. Jesus has died and risen again for us. God has given us his spirit so that we know God is our father, so that we know we are heirs of glory. Romans 1 to 8 is full of confidence and assurance and it almost sang out, didn't it, at the end of Romans chapter 8, nothing, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord and extraordinary confidence, assurance and joy in the Lord. But if you think about it, our confidence ultimately all comes back to one thing. It comes back to whether or not we can trust what God says. It comes back to the trustworthiness of God's word. How do we know Jesus died as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins? Only because God's word tells us so. How do we know that when we trust in Jesus, God will forgive us and welcome us into glory? Only because God's word says so. How do we know we have the Holy Spirit? Only because God's word tells us so. It all comes down to the trustworthiness of God's word. But the thing is, we're not the first people who've had God's word. The Jews had God's word as well. We saw that so clearly in the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, didn't we? Look with me again at Romans chapter 9 and verse 4. Verse 4, talking about the Jewish people. Look at the blessings and the promises and the covenants and the relationship with Jesus that they've got. Verse 4, theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Israel have got all God's promises. Israel have got a relationship with Jesus. Israel are in covenant with God. Israel are God's sons. Israel have had every expectation that they would be his people, both now and forever. But since the coming of Jesus, there's been a problem. Most Jewish people refuse to believe in Jesus. They refuse to trust in what Jesus has done. And for all their privileges, Paul is clear that they won't be God's people. 
Not now. Not ever. If Jews refuse to trust in Jesus, they will be cursed and cut off from Christ. That's why Paul weeps for them in verses 1 to 5 of of chapter 9. That's why he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for them. But it's not just a personal problem. Paul isn't just sad because this is his family. The unbelief of Israel creates a real theological problem. Because what does it mean for God's word? What does it mean for all God's promises? Israel have got all these great promises, the covenants, the divine glory, the the patriarchs are theirs, they're related to Christ. So what's happened now that Jesus has come? Has God changed his mind about the Jews? Are those promises now gone? Has God's word failed? I don't know if you've ever thought about this issue before. But can you see, it's actually a very important issue. Because what's our confidence based on? What's our assurance based on? Ultimately, it's based on God's word. And if God is a God who doesn't keep his promises, if God is a God whose word can fail, well, there goes our assurance. There goes our confidence. There goes our our song about how nothing can separate us from God's love. If he doesn't keep his promises to Israel, how do we know he's going to keep his promises to us? What's happened to God's promises to Israel? Has God's word failed? That is the big issue that Paul addresses in Romans chapters 9 to 11. Has God's word failed? Now, Paul is very quick to answer the question. He doesn't try to build up any suspense about it. He says, verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. God's word hasn't failed. So, so why not? How can Paul say that? Now, Paul's going to mount argument after argument through Romans chapters 9 to 11. But in verses 6 to 29, we get Paul's first reason, his first argument. And it's got to do with who can expect to receive God's promises. He's going to take us through the Old Testament and and try to show us more carefully who really can expect to receive God's promises. Now, Paul starts off by saying that not everyone who is from the family of Israel necessarily receives God's promises. Not every physical Israelite is a spiritual Israelite, is part of God's people. Verse 6 again. It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. God's promises... And not for everyone who happens to be born an Israelite. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all that glitters is gold, so to speak. And then Paul gives us an example. An example to prove his point. He takes us back to the very father of Judaism. He takes us back to Abraham, to the man who received God's promises in the first place. Now you remember that God promised to bless Abraham. He said, through your offspring I will bless the whole world. But God's promise didn't apply to all of Abraham's children. Abraham had a son called Ishmael by a woman called Hagar. And he had a son called Isaac by his wife Sarah. They were both offspring of Abraham. Both, you would think, would be inheritors of God's promise. But it's not the way God did it. Only Isaac received God's promise. Verse 7. 
nor, because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, quote from the Old Testament. In other words, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, another quote, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Two sons, both children of Abraham, only one is blessed. So here's the point. It has never been the case that you're part of God's people just by being physically related to Abraham, by being part of his race. It's not just that you're Abraham's physical son. That didn't help Ishmael. The God of Abraham is a God who chooses his people. And his choice is a matter of grace and not race. All right, well, you might say, Abraham's a very special case. Two different wives, some pretty shady circumstances surrounding Hagar and Ishmael. So Paul gives us another example. He moves from Abraham's children to Isaac's children. Isaac's boys were born of the same mother. They were twins, conceived and born in exactly the same time, in exactly the same circumstances. And yet before they were even born, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. Esau. Verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, quote from the Old Testament, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, another quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This time you've got twin sons, but only one receives the promise. Why? Well, certainly not because of who your dad is. It's certainly not because of your race. It's not a question of what physical family you come from. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is a God who chooses his people. And his choice is a matter of grace and not race. You see the point that Paul's making here? The fact that many Jews are not saved, well, if you look back at the Old Testament, it's no surprise doesn't mean God's word has failed. God's promises were never intended for everybody who happens to be related to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God has always been a God who chooses his people and he's always chosen by grace. But not everybody's so keen on that concept, are they? There's a poem that goes like this. When you say to man, God is God... They seem to see the truth and nod. And when you say he can do anything, they will surely like that orthodox ring. But when you say he chose, their minds begin to close. For they have learned by rote, mankind has the deciding vote. For in each man there speaks a voice, thank you, I'll make my own choice. Let God be God and do what I say. If he won't, then I won't play. humorous poem but of course it's not such humorous situations is it when it's your child who doesn't look like they've been chosen or your mum and dad or your brother or sister 
many people aren't too keen on the idea of a God who chooses. And so before he goes on, Paul answers a couple of objections to what he's been saying. The first objection is in verse 14, and this one questions God's justice. It says, look, if God can choose some people and not other people, that is not just. Verse 14. What then should we say? Is God unjust? Paul answers straight away. God is not unjust. Verse 14 again. Not at all. And then he quotes from the Bible. This time he moves forward to Moses, to the time when God revealed his glory to Moses. At that time God declared who he is and he made very clear that he's free to have mercy on whomever he wants. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now notice what Paul's done here. The objection has been raised that God is unjust. But can you see how Paul's shifted the issue a little bit? If you want to talk about salvation, well, we're not talking about God's justice. That's not the issue. If you want to talk about justice, well, we all go to hell. Romans 1 to 4 has made that very clear, hasn't it? When you talk about salvation, you're talking about God's mercy. If you are saved, it is because God has had mercy on you. And the God of Moses has always been very, very clear about it. It's his mercy. It belongs to him. He doesn't owe it to anybody. And he will give it to who he wants. He'll have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. But there's more to it than that. God can also harden people. Paul gives us the example of Pharaoh from the time of Exodus. You remember the story of the Exodus when God rescued Israel out of Egypt. Think uh, the Ten Commandments movie or whatever. Prince of of Egypt, if um, if you're into cartoons. You remember how many plagues there were? The time of the Exodus? Ten, weren't there? Ten plagues. Why do you reckon there were ten plagues? Do you think it was because there was God versus Pharaoh in this titanic World Series wrestling battle that was going on and God and Pharaoh are wrestling hard and God tries nine times to convince Pharaoh but Pharaoh refuses to be convinced but then finally on the tenth try God finally pins him. Of course not. So why ten plagues? The answer's in the quote from Exodus chapter 17. It was God's intention all along. It's what God raised Pharaoh up for all along. God was the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart and God did it so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. God did it because he was glorified as in miracle after miracle after miracle he brought down his judgment upon Pharaoh and rescued his people. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Paul concludes, verse 18, God is not unjust. God is God. And he'll have mercy on whom he wants and he'll harden whom he wants. Verse 18. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. 
No holding back there, is there? Well, then we get another objection. But this one, I reckon, is a little bit shonky, this next objection. It goes something like this. Don't know if you ever tried this objection. If God is the one who chooses, then I've got no choice. If God is the one who has mercy, if God is the one who hardens, then how can he blame me for being hard-hearted? How can he blame me for refusing to trust in Jesus? My hard-heartedness is God's fault. It's his fault that I'm stubbornly refusing to be a Christian. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Understand the objection? If God is the one who chooses, then it's his fault that I'm stubbornly refusing to trust in Jesus. Now, in chapter 10, Paul is going to make very clear that people are responsible for what they do about Jesus. He never denies that. But the fact is, it's perfectly obvious, isn't it? This isn't a serious objection. We know in ourselves, when we harden our hearts, we harden our hearts. When we are being stubborn, we are being stubborn. We're not puppets. We are responsible decision makers. This isn't an objection that requires an answer. This is an excuse that requires a rebuke. This is trying to blame God for your hard-heartedness. It's refusing to let God be God. It's saying, if you have the choice, then I can't have the choice. And so Paul reminds us, just once again, God is God. We are his creatures. He's not answerable to us. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why, do you, why did you make me like this? But he doesn't end there. He then hits us with a list of challenges. He says, God has got the right to do with his creation, to do with you what he wants. So what if God wants to create some people for destruction? So what if he did this to show his people how just and how merciful he is? So what? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to stand up and shake your fist against God? Verse 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? He's not going to take a backward step on us here, is he? It's not going to say, oh, well, of course, you actually do make choices and, and God is actually just waiting for you. Uh-uh. No apology for God here. No even attempt to balance it yet. He just lays it out. You're the creation. He's your God. If he wants to create some people for mercy, that is his moral right. If he wants to create some people for destruction, that is his moral right. He's God you're not. He has got absolute moral rights over his creation. It's tough stuff, isn't it? It's a difficult truth. And of course, it's not all there is to the truth. We've already seen Paul weep over Israel. And he's expressing God's heart for Israel there. In the next chapter, we're going to see God's passionate desire that all people be saved. We're going to see that he's been holding out his hands all day long to a stubborn Israel. We're going to see God's free offer to everyone. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Human responsibility is a real thing. But so is God's sovereignty. 
And so for now, Romans 9 is a challenge to you and me. Will you humble yourself and let God be God? Will you acknowledge his moral right to do what he wants with his creation? To have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy? And then, of course, we want to be mercy people, don't we? We don't want to be demanding justice from God, not, not sinners like you and me. God forbid that we receive his justice. We want to be begging God for his mercy. But the thing is, we don't want to be begging God for his mercy on the one hand and then shaking his fist as if he's not just on the other. We need to acknowledge God's right to do what he wants with his mercy. And we need to fall before him and beg for it. It doesn't come naturally to proud people like you and me. But that's the call. Well, that's the objections dealt with. Verse 24, Paul comes back to the argument that he's developed in verses 6 to 13. He's told us God is free to choose. God has always chosen. He's been through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God is the one who chooses. He chooses on the basis of grace and not race. Now what Paul's going to do, he's going to apply this principle to the gospel, to the great news of the gospel and to the fact that in the gospel God has chosen both Jews and Gentiles and to the fact that God has not chosen all Jews but only some. Verse 24 Paul is talking about the people God has prepared for glory. And notice we've got now not only Jew, but Gentile as well. Verse 24, even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul picks up the idea that Gentiles can be called into the gospel. And again, he shows it's an Old Testament idea, no, no failure of God's word. He takes us back to Hosea. And he so, shows that from Hosea that God can freely choose people who, who aren't his people. Now, back in Hosea's time, um, Israel had sinned terribly. Israel had sinned so terribly, God got so angry with Israel that he declared that they were not his people anymore. But then out of sheer mercy, God said they could be his people again. So verse 25, as God says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. There's the principle established in Hosea. God can take the people who are not his people, who've been rejected, and he can, he can make them his people again. That's God's right. He did it in Hosea's day with Israel. And now, Paul says, through Jesus, God has even done it with non-Israelites with Gentiles. And that's his moral right. And it's right in line with what he did in the Old Testament. And then on the other hand, Paul addresses the issue of only a few Jewish people being saved. And he says that's also God's right. In fact, it's no different from what God did in the, in the Old Testament. It happened, for example, in Isaiah's day, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah, completely destroyed. So again from Isaiah, you can see it. God is a God who chooses. If he only wants to choose a few Israelites, if he just wants to choose a remnant, that's his right. It always was. It's nothing new. He's done it before. And so the point of this last part, these quotes from Hosea and Isaiah, is this. If God wants to save Gentiles, well, that's in line with the Old Testament. If God only wants to save some of Israel, that's in line with the Old Testament. What has happened in the good news about Jesus, it doesn't come as a surprise. And it certainly doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Okay. It's all pretty complicated. If I've lost you, come back. Come back. We'll try and pull it together again. Can you see what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 9? Here's the situation. You've got Israel, God's people, with all of his promises, and most of them won't trust in Jesus. And so the question is, does that mean God's word has failed? Does it mean his promises are broken? Answer, no. And here's reason number one. The fact that you are born an Israelite has never meant that you'll definitely end up in heaven. Not all Israel are Israel. There is no expectation in the Old Testament that every Israelite will be saved. God has always saved people purely on the basis of his sovereign and gracious choice, election. That's the way he worked in the Old Testament, and that's what he's doing again in the Gospel. And Paul's taken us right through the Old Testament to prove his point. He's taken us through the law, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, onto Moses and Pharaoh. He's taken us to the prophets, to Moses, to, to Hosea and Isaiah. And all along we've seen that same thing. God is free to choose his people. Salvation is by grace and not by race. God's word has not failed. God's action in the gospel is right in line with his action through the whole Bible. God has kept his promises. So, how should we respond to Romans 9? Well, first, we need to be very clear in our mind exactly who God's promises are for. God's promises come by grace and not by race. And they come to us by grace through faith in Jesus. And that means... It doesn't matter who your family is. I find time and time again when I go to see people, particularly baptism contacts and that kind of thing, and I say, so are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Time after time, the answer is, well, I had an uncle who was a Methodist minister. Or I was baptised a Presbyterian, but my, my husband was baptised an Anglican, but our families are very, very strict religious This is the point, doesn't it? We're not saved by race. Doesn't matter if you're born of Abraham. Doesn't matter if you're born a Jew. And it doesn't matter if you're in the greatest Presbyterian family that ever lived. Doesn't matter if you've got 27 uncles who were Presbyterian ministers. It's not going to do you a scrap of good on Judgment Day. It's not relevant what race you are. 
God's promises come to us by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. What counts now is what has always counted. What counts is grace and not race. But the great news of Romans 9 is this. If you are trusting in Jesus, then this passage helps us to see that God will definitely keep his promises to us. God's word has not failed and God's word will not fail. It will never fail. If God says to you, if you trust in Jesus, you will be saved, God will do it. Nothing can stop him. He will not break his promise. He never has broken his promises and he never will break his promises and so we can be entirely confident. We can sing. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has bound himself to us in his word. His word will not fail and so we can be sure. We can be confident. We can rejoice even in sufferings, even in tough times, we can hold on to the God who is holding on to us and who has chosen us and who has promised things to us. If you trust in Jesus, you will be saved and God's word on this will not fail. Now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you keep your word. We thank you for your magnificent promises to us that you have given Jesus as the sacrifice to pay for our sins and that now through faith in him we have peace with you and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for each person who is here today that they will be trusting in Jesus alone relying upon your grace to them. Help us not to trust in anything else or in anyone else, but to rely entirely on Jesus. And please fill us with joy that when we trust in Jesus, we know your promises are sure. In Jesus' name, amen.